Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains references to suicide, domestic and other criminal violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Friday the 24th of August 1973. That was the day that Archibald McCafferty, fueled by drugs and supported by a young gang of followers, began his murderous rampage in Sydney. This was the brutal killing spree that'd see him dubbed Australia's Charles Manson. 49-year-old George Anson was a former soldier who now made a quid selling newspapers in the Canterbury Hotel, where he also drank much of his revenue. On Friday night, the 24th of August, he'd had a skinful and was making his staggering way back to his home not far away. Weaving along Jeffrey Street, the street on which he lived, George was spotted by four people in a stolen VW. Leader of this gang was heavily tattooed 24-year-old thug Archibald McCafferty. At the wheel of the car was 17-year-old Rick Webster. Also in the vehicle, 16-year-old Julie Ann Todd and 26-year-old mother of three, Carol Ellen Howes. Their mission? Find someone to beat and to rob. Rick Webster pointed out George Anson. The old digger was small at 5'2 and obviously intoxicated. An easy mark. Rick pulled into a side street and he and McCafferty got out and confronted George. Rick threatened him with a starting pistol and they dragged the old man into a side street. A passing car spooked Rick for a moment and he lost his nerve and walked away. When he came back, McCafferty was kicking George Anson in the head. Not wanting to see this, Rick said he averted his eyes. When he did look back, McCafferty appeared to be punching George Anson. Once, twice, a third time, and on and on until Rick had counted seven blows. George Anson fell back, blood spreading from his body. Rick asked McCafferty, Why is the blood coming out of his back if you are only punching him? McCafferty's response was chilling. I wasn't punching him, I was stabbing him. He delivered a final kick to George Anson before the two men ran back to the car. In the vehicle, Julie had seen what McCafferty had done and she asked him why he'd used his flick knife on the old bloke. McCafferty told her, quote, I stabbed him because he called me a young C-word. Then the gang leader turned to Rick and demanded, Why'd you run off, you weak C-word? Then he calmed and showed his accomplice the knife, saying, Look at that, it's blood. With that, they drove off first to a nearby hamburger joint where McCafferty washed the blood from his hands, then after that to the flat they shared in Eastwood where Julie washed the knife clean. While they were doing this, George Anson was bleeding out on the footpath. He was discovered by a passerby at around 11 o'clock and rushed to Canterbury Hospital but died soon after. Three nights later, McCafferty took his gang to Leppington Cemetery to visit the grave of his infant son Craig, who died in March the previous year. Then they went to a Narellan pub and plotted their next crime. <laughs> 
Julie and another gang member, 17-year-old Mick Meredith, would hitchhike on the Hume Highway and they'd carjack and rob whoever stopped. Ronald Cox, a 42-year-old coal miner, was on his way home to Villawood at 10 o'clock that night when he saw the hitchhiking couple and stopped to offer a lift. Julie got into the front passenger seat and Mick got in the back. They asked Ronald Cox to drop them at Lemington Cemetery. When they got there, Mick whipped out a sawn-off 22 caliber rifle and put it to Ronald Cox's head. Julie got out, Ronald was told to move over, and she drove the vehicle into the cemetery. A few minutes later, they were met by McCafferty, by Carol, Rick, and the sixth gang member, 17-year-old Dick Whittington, them all arriving in Rick's panel van. McCafferty told Ronald Cox to get out and lay face down. At this point, Dick and Julie drove Ronald's car to a rendezvous spot where they'd wait for the rest of the gang. On the ground, Ronald Cox pleaded, quote, There's no need to shoot me. You can have my car. I've got seven children. McCafferty said to Rick and Carol, quote, I'll have to knock him. He's seen your car and Dick and Mick's faces. Then he and Mick Meredith each shot Ronald Cox through the head with their sawn-off 22s. At the moment of this murder, McCafferty would say he saw his son's grave just 150 yards away, light up, and he heard his dead son laughing uncontrollably. This made McCafferty burst out laughing himself. His only regret, he said, was that he should have murdered Ronald Cox right over his son's grave so the blood could drip down to the boy. McCafferty's delusion, fueled by drugs and alcohol, he would later tell a psychiatrist, was that his dead infant son Craig was telling him to kill seven people. He heard a voice saying, kill seven, kill seven, repeatedly. Once that had been achieved, Craig would be resurrected and enter McCafferty's own body to live again. Kill seven. McCafferty had killed two so far, there were five to go. A few hours after Ronald Cox was murdered in Leppington Cemetery, 24-year-old Evangelos Collius was driving home to Newtown in the car that he used in his job as a driving instructor. He'd worked all day and spent the night visiting a friend. Then he saw two hitchhikers, Dick and Julie. He stopped and asked where they were going. They said Marrickville. Evangelos said that was fine, it was on his way. Then, Dick pulled out a sawn-off 22 and ordered the startled Evangelos to climb into the backseat of his car. Julie took the wheel and drove them to the Eastwood flat, where McCafferty and Mick Meredith came down and piled in. McCafferty drove. Evangelos Collius was told to get low in his seat so he wouldn't know where they were going. If he did this, he was told he wouldn't be hurt. Evangelos did this and he actually fell asleep, or so the killers would later testify. Again, McCafferty said to his gang that this man had to die to stop him identifying them. He asked Dick Whittington if he was game enough to shoot Evangelos. When they got to Arcadia Street in Maryland, Evangelos woke up and McCafferty said, Now, Dick, his minion shot Evangelos in the head and killed him instantly. Nevertheless, McCafferty ordered Dick to shoot him again, and so, taking the second sawn off from Mick Meredith, who handed it over from the front seat, he did just that. McCafferty drove a bit further down Arcadia Street, where Mick and Dick dragged the dead man from the car and dumped his body on the road. Now McCafferty was ready to kill the people he actually really hated, his wife and her family. His plan was to drive Evangelos's car to where his wife lived in Blacktown and begin 
a murderous assault. The problem was that Evangelos's car didn't have enough petrol to get them there. So they abandoned the vehicle and the plan for that night at least. Two days later, on the 30th of August, Rick Webster went into the Sydney Morning Herald building on Broadway where he worked as an apprentice compositor. He'd been sent in to collect his pay by McCafferty, Dick and Mick who were waiting outside in the panel van armed with their 22 caliber rifles. Rick believed that McCafferty had decided he had to die. And he was actually right. McCafferty would claim that his dead son had ordered that Rick should be the next to be slaughtered. In the Sydney Morning Herald building, the terrified youth told his co-workers what was going on. They called the police, who surrounded the van outside. McCafferty, Mick Meredith and Dick Whittington were arrested without a shot. The two female gang members were taken into custody at the flat soon afterwards. A three-part Sydney Morning Herald series the following year would delve into McCafferty's life to ask the question why this man had been on the streets in the first place. Archibald McCafferty was born in 1949 in Scotland and he came to Australia when he was 10. His family lived at first in Geelong and then moved to Bass Hill in Sydney. McCafferty hadn't wanted to come to Australia and he absolutely hated his new home. He acted out, running away and committing petty crimes. A Sydney detective who knew him at the age of 11 said, quote, He was the toughest kid I ever met. You could not frighten him. You could not get through to him. The next year, when he was 12, McCafferty was arrested for burglary and he was sent to an institution. He'd be bounced around four more of these over the next six years. One of the places he was incarcerated was the Institution for Boys at Tamworth. This former colonial prison has since been called a factory for violent offenders akin to a concentration camp. Other inmates included Nettie Smith and George Freeman, both of whom later said it was the most brutal place they'd been held, which is saying something given how many jails they'd end up in. Six years in institutions didn't scare Archibald McCafferty straight. The contrary, in fact. Between the age of 18 and 23, he racked up more than 35 convictions for crimes such as car theft, assault and larceny. He'd also fight the police given a chance to swing a punch while being placed under arrest. What no one knew, but what he'd confessed later, was that he also sometimes strangled animals. Chickens, dogs, cats. Just to see what killing was like. In April 1972, McCafferty married Janice Richards, a young switchboard operator and part-time barmaid. Just six weeks into their marriage, she caught him in their house with another woman and she asked what the hell was wrong with him. McCafferty seemed to realise that she had a point and he checked himself into Rydalmere Psychiatric Hospital. But he soon checked himself out and afterwards, with Janice now pregnant, McCafferty took to drinking heavily and when he was drunk, he was prone to lose his temper and violently assault her. One of his brutalities was to choke her to the point where she was about to pass out. In August 1972, McCafferty put himself into Parramatta Psychiatric Centre where he told doctors he was being plagued by murderous thoughts. He checked himself out and now he added drugs, reportedly heroin and angel dust, to his diet of drink. In February 1973, Janice gave birth to their son Craig. According to Janice though, being a new father didn't curb McCafferty's horribly abusive behaviour. 
On the morning of Sunday the 18th of March, Janice awoke to find six-week-old Craig dead in the bed beneath her. She'd fallen asleep while breastfeeding and rolled on top of him. McCafferty blamed her for killing the boy and said she'd done it deliberately. A week later, he attacked her screaming, quote, You killed my baby, and he tried to strangle her. Janice's brother and another man pulled him off. The next day, McCafferty went back to Parramatta Psychiatric Centre, but he only stayed a few weeks. He discharged himself on the 12th of April, and later psychiatrists would tell the Sydney Morning Herald that they'd had no power to hold him because he'd checked himself in voluntarily and he hadn't been officially classified as mentally ill. After leaving Parramatta Psychiatric Centre, McCafferty, who was wanted for the assault on Janice, took off to Queensland for a few months. Archibald McCafferty had more than 200 tattoos. One read, The man who puts another man under lock and key is not born of woman's womb. He also had the number 7 tattooed on his right hand because it was his lucky number. After his son's death, he added a big cross wrapped in flowers on his chest with the words, In memory of Craig. Returning to Sydney in the middle of 1972, McCafferty took the Eastwood flat with several gang members. Some of these were youths he'd known in psychiatric hospitals, while others he'd recruited while out and about. McCafferty also entered a sexual relationship with 26-year-old Carol Ellen Howes, and she was soon pregnant with his child. On the 23rd of August, the night before the inquest into the death of baby Craig, which, by the way, would find that Janice wasn't at fault, McCafferty threw a stone through his estranged wife's window. Wrapped around the stone were two notes. Here's how one began. Quote, Janice, you and the rest of your family can go and get effed, because anyone who has anything to do with me is going to die a bad death. McCafferty planned to kill his wife, her mother, and her mother's boyfriend. The following day, the 24th of August, 1973, McCafferty began his killing spree with the stabbing of George Anson. Then came Ronald Cox and Evangelos Collius. If not for Evangelos's car being low on petrol, it's likely that Janice and her family would have also been slaughtered. The Sydney Morning Herald reported of what McCafferty had told detectives about his plans for Janice. Quote, After he killed his wife, he was going to cut off her head and post it in a box to the chief of the CIB. Archibald McCafferty and his five minions went on trial from the 12th of February 1974 on various charges. McCafferty was up for all three murders, Julianne Todd for the second two murders, as were Mick Meredith and Dick Whittington. All six gang members were charged with the murder of Ronald Cox. In McCafferty's case, his defence was insanity. Meanwhile, his gang members' lawyers argued that their clients had been intimidated by McCafferty and had gone along with the crimes because they feared for their lives. During the trial, McCafferty's violent tendencies were controlled with massive doses of tranquilizers, enough to put the average person into a stupor, yet they barely touched the sides with him, and he was alert and amused by the proceedings. When the Crown had rested, he made a speech in his own defence. The Sydney Morning Herald printed it in full. Quote, Your Honour and Gentlemen of the Jury, Firstly, I would like to say that at the time of these crimes, I was completely insane. The reason why I done this is for the revenge of my son's death. This is what made me do it. Before this, I had stated to a doctor that I felt like killing people, but up until my son's death, I had not killed anyone. 
My son's death was the biggest thing that ever happened to me because I loved him so much and he meant the world to me and after his death I just seemed to go to the pack. I feel no wrong for what I have done because at the time that I did it, I didn't think it was wrong. But after my son was killed, I tried to kill my wife and I was admitted into Parramatta Psychiatric Home because I knew I needed treatment. So I signed myself in and I was there for a number of weeks. I think if given the chance, I will kill again for the simple reason that I have to kill seven people and I have only killed three, which means I have four to go and this is how I feel in my mind and I just can't say that I am not going to kill anyone else because in my mind, I am. Whether you think I am sane or insane is up to you, but I would say that I was definitely insane at the night of these murders. The day of my son's inquest at the coroner's court happened to be the day I stabbed Mr. Anson. The reason why I killed this man was because I heard my son's voice tell me to do so. The same with the second and third person. Each time I went to the graveyard to visit my son's grave, a violent streak would come over me and I wanted to be so violent I wanted to kill people. I kept hearing voices, not only my son's voice but other voices as well, which I don't know whose they are. On the Thursday that I was apprehended, I had every intention of killing Rick Webster as I heard the voices to tell me to do so and anyone else that the voices tell me to kill, I would kill until I reached the figure 7. I still say I felt no wrong in what I have done and I am still willing to kill anyone else that I am told to kill. At the time of my son's death, I took it pretty hard and since then I have not been the same because I loved him so much and I believe in my own mind that my wife murdered him on purpose and that is why I killed these men for the revenge of my son's death. And this is the honest truth. So I hope the jury and your honour will believe what I said. That's it. The jury didn't buy it. Archibald McCafferty was found guilty on the three murder charges and given three life sentences. Mick Meredith and Dick Whittington got 18 years each for the murders of Ronald Cox and Evangelos Collius. Rick Webster was found guilty of the manslaughter of Ronald Cox and sentenced to four years. Carol Ellen Howes, meanwhile, was found not guilty of the murder of Ronald Cox and she was discharged. Soon to have McCafferty's baby and vowing that she'd wait for him in the hope he'd be released. As for teenager Julie Ann Todd, she was sentenced to 10 years for her part in two of the murders. She hanged herself, aged 17, in Silverwater Jail on the 20th of May, 1973. Archibald McCafferty's record behind bars was horrific. In 1973, awaiting trial, he assaulted another prisoner, and he committed another violent attack just after he was convicted. McCafferty and another prisoner in September 1981 stabbed a fellow inmate at Parramatta Jail to death and McCafferty would get 14 years for this manslaughter. In November 1981, he was charged with supplying heroin to other prisoners. McCafferty maintained his innocence on the manslaughter charge and he turned informer on the other jailbirds he said were responsible. Snitching put his life in danger and he was placed into protective custody. But his ongoing informing also meant that in 1986 he earned supervised day release so he could visit a woman named Mandy he'd met while behind bars and to whom he'd gotten engaged. The following year, McCafferty burned a cigarette into his chest tattoo and this supposedly ended his delusions about his dead son. By 1988, a senior prisons officer reckoned he was a model prisoner. Three years later, under truth in sentencing legislation, Archibald McCafferty was actually eligible to be considered for parole. 
yet the federal government then decided if he was ever released, he was going to be deported because he'd never become an Australian citizen. From the early 1990s, McCafferty was allowed out on work, day and weekend release. At a 1993 parole hearing, McCafferty said, quote, I can't answer why about what actually happened. Drugs, alcohol and grief had a lot to do with it. I can't break down and cry about what happened 20 years ago, but I feel terrible within me. The possibility of reoffending is absolutely zero. He was denied parole at that point, but on the 18th of April, 1997, Archibald McCafferty was granted parole. When he was released on the 1st of May, the federal government followed through on its promise and deported him. In Scotland, he was reunited with his wife Mandy, who he'd married and then divorced while in prison. She was soon pregnant and bore him a son around June 1998. Four months later, he went on a drinking binge and had an argument with Mandy, and despite being drunk and not having a license, took off in a car. When the police pulled him over, he threatened to kill them. McCafferty was simply able to plead guilty to minor charges, including unlicensed driving and failing to provide a breathalyzer sample, for which he got a two-year good behaviour bond. In April 2004, McCafferty, now 54 years old, tried to kill his wife Mandy with a knife in their unit in Howick. He slashed her arm and she fled with their youngest daughter Chloe. McCafferty held their son, who was by now five, at knife point and barricaded the door to his flat. After 90 minutes of negotiations with the police, he let the boy go and half an hour after that, he gave himself up. McCafferty faced numerous charges, the most serious of which were attempted murder, abduction and assault. Yet, he was found guilty only of minor charges and was jailed for just six months. Four years later, in 2008, McCafferty was caught driving a stolen car for which he got 200 hours community service. By this stage, he'd met a new partner, Shireen, and the last time he made news was in 2012 when the Daily Record newspaper discovered he was working in an Edinburgh clothing boutique that Shireen managed. When a journalist tried to interview him, he said, quote, I'm really angry about this. I want my privacy, especially from the bloody media. I've done my time and I want people to get out of my face and leave me be. Since then, Archibald McCafferty hasn't made news again that I've been able to find. I hope that means that he's leaving other people be. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 